Hey everyone, and welcome to ARE Live. I'm Chris Hopstock, Architect Education Specialist here at Black Spectacles and your host for ARE Live. Today, we're going to be joined by our guest expert, Kat Hurd, who's going to walk through one question from each division of the ARE and offer tips for how to pass each one. If you think of any questions you'd like to ask Kat during the Q&A later in the episode, make sure to post them in our ARE community. Go to community.blackspectacles.com and post your questions or comments on the Setting a Study Foundation episodes page. Everyone who posts in our community thread today will be entered to win a free Black Spectacles t-shirt. So head over and just say hello. Uh, stay tuned to the end of the episode to see if you won. On the next ARE Live, we, which will be February 16th, 2023, we'll be talking about egress systems, including how to determine occupant loads, how to arrange the components of the egress system, and what considerations you'll need to make during the CD phase of a project to detail the egress system. You can go to go.blackspectacles.com forward slash podcast to sign up or check out the community page for this ep episode for the registration link. This episode is all about setting yourself up for success with a strong study foundation. And to help you do that, we're offering up to 20% off when you sign up or upgrade to an annual subscription today. Use the code NEWYEAR10 to get 10% off a monthly subscription or NEWYEAR20 to get 20% off an annual one from now through January 31st. To learn more about the study materials Black Spectacles offers or to watch this episode again later, go to go.blackspectacles.com. Although all of our episodes are available in both video and audio podcast formats after the airing, we'll be sharing Kat's screen during today's live, so we really recommend that watching the webinar to better see how she works through these questions. Without further ado, I'd like to welcome today's guest, Kat Hurd. In addition to working with us here at Black Spectacles, Kat is an architect based in Seattle, Washington, working with MG2, and she's also a member of the AIA Seattle Code Committee. So welcome, Kat. Thanks, Chris. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, so let's uh, jump into this first question here. So like I mentioned, we've got one question from each of the six divisions, and we're going to be going through these in an order um, that we recommend to a lot of folks about uh, when they ask, which division should I start with and what order should I go through the ARE? Um, I think starting with PCM makes a lot of sense, um, mainly because it's, it's an exam that you're gonna have to do, uh, you're mostly gonna learn what you need to know for PCM by studying. You're, you're not going to really gain the information to pass the PCM exam through experience because sort of by definition, you're not gonna be running a firm until you're a licensed architect. So I think it makes sense to start with this exam, do a lot of studying. That way you can use that time to also gain experience um, at your firm on the other topics and the other divisions that you'll, you'll be taking later on. So it kind of buys you time to gain experience for the later divisions. Um, this is a pretty typical PCM question where we're provided an excerpt from a contract and um, a whole bunch of information and we're asked to perform a calculation. So Kat, walk us through it. Absolutely, all right. So before we do jump in, I also wanna offer a little more information just about myself for anyone listening. I've been licensed about four or five years at this point, um, and I actually failed three out of my six exams. So if anyone is listening or watching and they're in the same boat, um, you're in unfortunately very good company with me. I know how frustrating it is to put in all that time and effort um, and not pass on that first try. So, you know, if that's you, I just want to let you know that's me as well. 
Um, so let's go ahead and jump in. So apologies that part of the contract is um, cut off here on my screen a little bit. We're working with a tiny screen today. But so what I like to do when I first start with a question, regardless of what it is, um, before I go to reading the actual question or any of the answers, although this is a fill in the blank, I like to just start off by reading um, all the text that we have. So let's do that. Refer to the exhibit. A project manager is preparing a lump sum fee proposal for a project. After discussing it with the principal, the project manager decides to prepare the fee proposal using the following criteria. 8% of construction cost for the design phases. It's gonna be SD through CD. Fixed fee of 105,000 for the bidding phase and 22,000 per month for the CA phase. After discussing with the owner, the owner and project manager agree to a 15 month construction duration. What should the total fixed fee be for the project? Um, so what I'm gonna do right off the bat, now that I know what I'm looking for, I, um, during all my exams, I'm big into using the highlight and strike through tool. Um, it doesn't matter how you wanna do this, if you are a highlighter, if you're a strike througher, if you prefer to take notes, it's really gonna be whatever works best for you. So what the important stuff that I would pull out here first is we've got a 15 month construction duration. So that's gonna cue me into how many months we're gonna be doing our CA phase for, because we're gonna do CA throughout the entire construction duration. So that's gonna be important information I need. All of these bullet points are also gonna be important information. Um, and so now we need to look at this portion of the contract that we have. Let's say that this was um, a case study question and not just a question like this where we do have a snippet. I think we all know that the case study reference materials can get pretty lengthy. And again, fortunately, we do have the snippet here. But if you ever do have a contract where it's the full thing and you feel like you don't have time to read through all of it, that's fine. All we're looking for is the relevant information here. So immediately, my eyes are going to go to the text that's slightly different than um, the contract language and how that looks. So immediately I see we've got mixed use building, 15,000 square feet retail, 45,000 residential, and 8,000 subgrade parking. So I'm gonna go ahead and write that down um, because I think that that's gonna be important. So this is a great example of why I think all of us are a little frustrated with the whiteboard. Uh, writing doesn't look as great as the text does. You will see me switch back and forth between the two based on what I'm doing. Um, the good news is at the end of the day, unless you're broadcasting to a group like I am, no one else is gonna be reading your notes. Um, all they have to be is legible to you, so go ahead and do whatever is easiest for you. I'm gonna go ahead and switch to text now just so that people can read it um, and follow along. So we've got our 15,000 square foot retail, uh, 45,000 square foot residential, and then we've got 8,000 square feet of parking. Okay, so the next information we have, we've got the address in the um, in the contract. So for me, I know based on the question, I don't need to know anything about the address. A time and address would be important in a question like this is if we had um, like a location cost multiplier, which is fairly typical in construction. So let's say we were being told this is in Des Moines, Iowa, and it has a cost inflation of 1.6. Um, that's when the address would start to get important to us. But for this, it's just some extra information that we have. So now let's move on to the cost of the work because this is going to tell us that 8% of the construction cost for the design phases. So we've got 250 
$1,000 per square foot for retail, $425 for residential, and $325 for subgrade parking. So let's go ahead and do the math to find out the first portion of this answer, which is going to be that 8% of the construction cost. To find that, we need to know the total construction cost in general. So let's go ahead and start with the retail. That's going to be $15,000. Let me get the cursor out of the way. Square feet times $250 per square foot. Let's use our calculator here. All right. Okay, so 15,000 times 250 is going to be 3,750,000. Um, another great example of why the whiteboard is not our favorite. It can be a little clunky to use, but again, it doesn't need to be pretty. It just needs to work for us. So now I'm going to have to downsize my whiteboard a little bit to get all my tools back. All right, there we go. I really appreciate okay. you adding all those commas in there too. It's really easy with these big numbers to uh, miss a zero right there and because uh, yeah. the calculator doesn't have commas. So um, be super careful with that and, and take the extra second to make sure you're getting the right number of commas. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, something else that I would point out, I am using a lot of brain power to um, specifically say 45,000 or 3,750,000. In my mind, the way I read that number is 3750000. I'm spelling it out for you guys because my own brain logic might make not make a lot of sense to folks. Um, so again, this, it's a good example of you do the math however you need to in your head or on the exam, no one else is gonna know. All right, so this number is going to be 19,125,000. All right, and then let's go for our last one here. So we've got 300, let's start with the square footage, 8,000 square feet times 325 per square feet. What's that gonna equal? 8,000 times 325. That is going to give us our answer of 2,600,000. Cool. So let's go ahead and add those together. What I do like about this calculator is it does show the history, which can be really helpful um, if you kind of get lost up here. It does, you know, keep it down here kind of nicely. Ooh, and look at that. You can actually click on those and that'll give you the number. Ooh, look at that. All right. That, that This is new information to me, guys. This is exciting. All right. So... I started with the middle number, which I wouldn't necessarily recommend, but that's just what I clicked on. All right, so it looks like our total cost is going to be, I'm using my cursor to represent the commas here so I can read it. Um, <laughs> our total construction cost is gonna be 25,475,000. Even it looks like, all right, so that's good. Typically on a math question like this, if I'm not sure about my numbers, if I'm not sure if the math is adding up, I would go through and run these numbers maybe one more time. For our sake here, I'm not going to do that. But, you know, if you feel like that's you on the exam, don't worry. You're not you're certainly not alone. I definitely did that as well. So we have our total construction costs. And now we need to figure out what 8% of that is going to be for the design phases. So when I first read this question, I 
I sort of thought um, in my mind, 8% of the construction cost for each design phase. So this is where it's really important to pay attention to the phrasing. No, that would be a very hefty architect's fee. Kudos to anyone getting 24% for SD through CD. Um, I have not heard of that before, but so it actually is just 8% overall. So what we're gonna do is take that 25 million, 475,000 and multiply that by 0 0.08 and that will give us our uh, what fee we need to be charging for um, the first three design phases. So 25,475,000 times 0 0.08 and that's going to be our initial fee which is going to be two million and thirty thirty eight thousand dollars so $2,038,000. Okay, so we've discovered the fixed fee for part one of the three parts here. Um, fortunately, part two, we already have that number. It's a fixed fee for the bidding phase. So we we know that we are going to need to do um, $105,000 for that. I'm running out of room a little bit here, so I'm going to kind of push some of this up. Um, just because my scrolling down isn't being very efficient right now. So let me add in that 105,000. So again, now we know we've got that. And then 22,000 per month for the CA phase. So we've got 22,000. Again, from the question, we're told we have the 15 month construction duration. So 22,000 per month times 15 months. Another great example of the uh, whiteboard being a little bit fussy. 22,000 times 15, that's going to give us $330,000 for the fee there. So to get our final answer of what the total fixed fee is gonna be for the project, we're just gonna add up all these numbers. So I'm gonna go bottom to top here. So we've got the 330,000 plus 105,000 plus the 2,038,000. And I'm double checking to make sure I've got enough digits in there because unfortunately, kind of like Chris pointed out, the commas are helpful and the calculator doesn't let us do those. So that's gonna give us a total number of, it looks like 2,473,000. So that's what I'm gonna put in our answer box. So we've got 2,473,000 dollars. Um, just a note for those listening and watching on entering the actual value in this box, it doesn't matter if you include the commas or not. Um, I'm putting them in just as a visual cue to make sure that I've got all the digits correct. It will be counted correct um, regardless of if you've got the commas in there. That was a great explanation. Thanks, Kat. And regardless of how uh, messy that whiteboard might look, it really worked for Kat. It was it was super easy to follow along, I thought. And um, keeping it organized, uh, even if it's just sort of in your mind, was definitely helpful on this one. So um, again, this is a pretty standard PCM question. Um, like I was saying earlier, you're probably not developing a fee proposal um, at your firm before you're a licensed architect. So that's one of the reasons I think this is a great um, exam to start with and, and sort of just study for it and get it out of the way. Um, you might see a question like this that is not based on a percentage of the fee. You could be provided with some employees hourly rates and some estimates of how long they're going to be um, working on the project and have to develop a fee that way. There's, there's a whole um, range of different ways you could develop a fee and you'll need to be familiar with all of those to be successful on the PCM exam because uh, developing a fee is a big part of 
that particular exam. So let's take it on to the next one, which is project management. Uh, since you were just studying for PCM, PJM goes goes along well um, with with the uh, PJM goes along well with the PCM exam, and it's it's really nice to group those two. Um, this particular question has some some PA undertones, I would say. Um, you've you've got to um, you're going to have to make some value judgments about the design of a project when you're answering this question, and that makes sense if you think about what it takes to be a project manager, right? It's not all work plans and contracts and uh, quality uh, assurance, quality control. You've 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 got to actually manage the architecture of the project. So there's going to be some overlap in this division with um, the other more design-heavy divisions, and I think it makes sense to start with this one, and then we're going to move into PA um, through the other design divisions. So with that said, take it away, Kat. Awesome, thank you. Um, so the first thing I'm going to do is get a new whiteboard page. Um, obviously, if this was the real exam and we had something like 80 questions, I'm not necessarily advocating that you keep adding a page for each one, um, but it could be worth it if you're if you know you're going to come back to the question to double check your math or something, especially if it is a math heavy question uh, like our question number one was. What I would recommend is just putting at the top something that says like question one that way you can you know go through your pages really quick and figure out exactly which question you're looking at so i'm actually going to just go ahead and add that because it is kind of a good practice to get into so now we're working on question two <clears throat> so again let's just start by reading the question an architect is reviewing their latest cost of work estimate at the end of the design development phase for a new construction library project in a hot arid climate the current design meets all of the client's programmatic requirements, but the cost of work estimate is 3% above the client's budget of 5125000 The project is located in a downtown area and is adjacent to public transportation routes. Which of the following revisions should the architect propose in order to align their proposed design with the client's budget? Check the four that apply. So I know <laughs> right off the bat, the check all that apply are some of um, our least favorite questions because it, we don't get partial credit, right? Um, but the good news is these questions aren't as scary as they look, especially when it's check four that apply or check two. That means we only have two wrong answers here. So two thirds of these answers are gonna be correct and that's gonna work in our favor and you'll see why. So let's let's look at our answer choices before we go back and highlight anything in here, just to get an idea of what we might be looking at. Because there were some things that jumped out immediately. Um, the hot arid climate, it's a new construction project, it's in a downtown area. So let me see what we're looking for um, and what our choices are before I go back and really highlight anything. So we've got reduced glazing percentage from 30 to 25% remove solar shading. So both of these kind of go into that hot, arid climate. So that's definitely gonna be important. So right off the bat, I would probably go up and highlight that. Um, replace wood flooring with carpet tiles, not necessarily related uh, to anything that we're given in the uh, question. Reduce the size of the child's reading room, that's kind of programmatic. Reduce the size of the parking lot and revise librarian's desk. Okay, so nothing in here is telling me that the new construction is necessarily um, incredibly relevant to the question. So that's some extra information. 
So what I do wanna focus on is hot, arid climate. And because we do talk about parking, it is good to know that it's located in a downtown area, so probably has a higher density and it's adjacent to public transportation. So before we figure out which of these we think we could propose, let's first figure out how much we're over budget by. So the original budget is gonna be the 5,125,000. We're gonna multiply that by 1.03 to figure out exactly how much over budget we are. Times 1.03. So that's gonna give us 5,278,750. So this is the current cost of the work. So to find the delta, um, which is gonna be the difference between the over budget and the original budget, that's gonna tell us how much we're over by. So let's go ahead and subtract the original budget by this. Nope. Let me, nope, I was correct with that initial zero again. You know, you gotta double check uh, your zeros. Those commas are really helpful when we do have them. Okay, so what we're trying to do is we are trying to make sure that we can cut out $153,750 out, um, out of the program and out of what we're looking at. So let's now look at our answer choices. So what I like to do here is before I decide which are definitely right and definitely wrong, I'm just gonna read through all of them again and kind of give my overall thoughts. So the first one, reduce glazing percentage from 30% to 25% for $60,000 savings. So this seems like a small decrease for, a, for pretty big savings. Reducing the glazing percentage from 30% to 25%, it's unlikely to affect user experience. This is a library, it's not an art gallery. So, you know, having a very specific glazing amount probably isn't high priority here. So I like this answer. I'm gonna leave that as, you know, maybe veering on the edge of yes. Option two, remove solar shading devices from the facade for $35,000 savings. So I'm going to put this in the maybe column. Um, because we are in that hot, arid climate, it's not my favorite option. Um, and we also don't know what these solar shading devices are. It could be vertical fins. It could be blinds. Um, we don't necessarily know what that is. $35,000 is a lot. It's not as much as that $60,000. So again, let's leave this in the maybe column for now. Replace wood flooring with carpet tiles at Stacks area. So this requires you to know a little bit about a library program. Fortunately, I think we've all been in a library at some point in our life. And the Stacks area is kind of that densely uh, populated area with a lot of books. It's, um, it's not book storage, but that's you know where you're gonna be looking up the Dewey Decimal System. So I, I'm kind of surprised that they would have put wood flooring in there to begin with, because what do we all associate with a library? The librarian shush. Um, libraries should be pretty quiet in general and wood flooring is going to cause a lot of echoing. It's also pretty high maintenance and the stacks are going to get a lot of foot traffic. So immediately, I don't like having wood flooring back there for those two reasons. Carpet tiles, on the other hand, are a great option um, in any public space. They're easy to, you know, if someone spills something, you can rip that tile out, put a new one down. It's quieter. It's got a little more sound absorption. So I think that that's a great um a really great option. So I'm gonna say yes immediately to this one. So we've got one of our uh, four answers already. Moving on, reduce the size of the children's reading room by 50%. Now, 
this is this is going to offer us the most savings here of the 65,000. However, this is starting to affect program in a major way. Because we don't have any additional programmatic information, we don't know how important the child's reading room is or the children's reading room is. However, reducing the size of any programmatic element by 50% is no small move. That's a pretty big design move regardless of what the function of that space is. So right off the bat, I'm gonna say, I really don't like this one. I'm gonna take that out of the running. And so because I've done that, instead of, you know, finding the four right answers, all we're really looking for now is the one wrong answer as well, because that, and that's kind of the way to reverse engineer questions like these. You can either look for the four correct ones or the two wrong ones. We've got one of the wrong answers out of the way already, so now there's only going to be one more. So our next option is reduce the size of the parking lot by 10% for 50 grand in savings. So I this is not my favorite option either and here's why parking is typically um, governed by a code by zoning by something by the AH day the authority having jurisdiction and usually it, it's rare that people are going to add in extra parking just because that said it's only being reduced by 10 percent so let's think about that. If we're giving 10 parking spaces, taking away one, 10% of that, that's not going to cause a massive change. We're also adjacent to those public transportation routes and we're in a downtown area. So we know that it's gonna be a densely populated area in general, which makes this option a little more appealing. Um, so again, I'm not saying this is an automatic yes, but I'm also not saying it's an automatic no. So let's go ahead and leave this one in the maybe column as well. So now we've got our final option, revise the librarian's desk from custom millwork to an alternate material for $28,000 in savings. I, to me, this is an automatic yes, and I'll tell you why. So custom millwork, not only is it expensive, but I would expect to see it more in um, like a scientific laboratory or a really specialized program that's going to need that specialized millwork. A library is a fairly typical program, so I can't imagine that we're gonna need something that can't necessarily be bought off the shelf. Yes, this could affect the aesthetic intent, of the of you know the owner's vision but what it's not going to do is affect the program and it's going to save us quite a bit of money so again that's why this is an automatic yes for me so let's go ahead and see out of those two automatic yeses how much money we're saving already so i'm apparently trying to draw squares when i'm trying to do text awesome so twenty-five thousand dollars plus the twenty-eight thousand. again this is from the two options that i immediately said i really liked um, I could probably do the math in my head, but that's never to be trusted, at least for me on the AREs. So let's go ahead and use our calculator. So that's going to give us um, a total savings of 53000 So if we take that away from our total number, we're still looking to save $100,750. So now that's our new goal based on the three choices we have remaining. And we know that we need to use two of these. So this is where the math is going to work in our favor. Out of these three options that we have left, again, they're all in my maybe column, but only two of these are going to add up to be over $100,000. So that actually is going to give us our answer here. So our answer is going to be reduce the glazing percentage, which again, I was veering on the side of yes anyway, so I like that. And we're going to reduce the size of our parking lot by 10%. 
again, neither of the two last options that I had of the parking lot and the solar shading devices were my favorite options out of the two. However, we do know based on the math that it has to be reduced the size of the parking lot. That was a super systematic way of going through this one, and I really appreciate you gaming the question a little bit at the end and uh, saving some time. It it helps you from uh, spending time sort of like going through that thought process again of what's what's really important here and, and what's not. Um, I think that um, when it comes to reducing the size of the children's room, I'll just add one more point on that one and why it's incorrect, is the, the note in the question about the current design meeting all of the client's programmatic requirements. Um, you have to think about why is that information even being provided to you and um, it helps to actually practice writing some questions and you'll realize that when you write questions like these you you start adding information to the question as you write your answer choices um, to to sort of give a reason why something's correct or incorrect so um, that piece of information is really only in there to to support why this answer choice is incorrect um, and the other thing I'll say is that if you're if you're studying for PJM, you know that by the end of the design development phase, which is where we're at in this project, you really shouldn't be adjusting the sizes of, of programmatic elements really at all, but definitely not by 50%. Um, you could imagine that would have a ripple effect either on adjacent rooms having to get bigger to, to accompany that extra space, or in this case, it would probably make the envelope of the building smaller and change all your exterior um, elevations and things like that. So, um, you know, if you're if you were stuck on that one and you were wondering about it, there's those two snippets of information in the question that really um, explain why that one's incorrect. So our next question that we're going to move on to is for the PA division. Um, the, the next three actually, PA, PPD, and PDD, all sort of go hand in hand and they cover, uh, loosely cover the three design phases of a project, um, schematic design through contract documents. And for that reason, we recommend taking them together and we recommend taking them in that order. Um, so for this particular question, um, just a, a quick um, tidbit of information before Kat gets into it is that um, you're gonna be doing a, a zoning analysis for this question and you might look at it initially and say, wait a second, I'm used to doing a zoning analysis in plan. This is all confusing. I've never seen this before. Or maybe you have, and that's great. But um, if you've never seen it before, don't let that throw you off when you start this question and sort of um, make you spend longer than you need to it uh, need to on it. Um, you've, If you're taking the PA exam, you've studied zoning, you know how to do it, and we're just looking at a question, um, at a zoning analysis in a little bit of a different way on this question. So Kat, take it away. Right on. Thanks, Chris. So I did go full screen for this one. When I have the whiteboard and the calculator up, um, this diagram gets really teeny tiny. So for our purposes here, I'm going to try and stay in full screen. So let's go ahead and start off by reading the question. An architect is working on the preliminary design of a new mixed-use building in a downtown area where the developer wants to maximize the gross area of the project. After studying the traffic patterns on the site, the architect notes that Broadway, which is going to be on one side of our building down here, receives 2.5 times more foot traffic than alley number five on the other side. Utility service enters the site from Broadway. The architect plans to use 10-foot floor-to-floor heights for each floor other than the first, which will be 12 feet tall. The following zoning information is known. Rear setbacks are required begin 
beginning at a height 15 foot above grade. Front setbacks are required beginning at a height 65 foot above grade. The maximum building height is 100 feet and there are no FAR requirements, which is great. Um, I really don't like the FAR calculations, so this makes this question automatically a little bit easier in my opinion. Drag and place the elements into their appropriate location on the section diagram in order to comply with the zoning ordinance. Okay, so let's go ahead and see which, like what we have to place on this diagram first. So we've got a couple residential blocks. Um, one is longer, one is shorter. We have a residential lobby, retail, parking, and utility. So I think on the actual in-carb exam, it, we would have a little information that would say, um, you know, make sure or each block will be placed at least once, something like that. I happen to know that we are going to be placing the residential lobby um, and the parking, even though the program and the question doesn't really mention it. Um, again, I think that will probably be a little more straightforward on the actual exam. But for our purposes, I just wanted to give you guys that extra little piece of information. So what I want to do first is I want to start with the ground floor here. So what we know about the ground floor is that um, Broadway is going to receive 2.5 times more foot traffic than alley number five. Out of what we're putting on the ground floor, um, immediately I see retail and that's, that is a classic ground floor uh, program. Retail obviously operates from people walking past, getting a lot of foot traffic in and out. So um, the first thing I'm gonna place is that retail block. So I'm gonna drag it on. Again, I'm gonna have to scroll down a little bit just because of the nature of this question. And I'm gonna place the retail here. So out of the other ground floor um, things that I could be placing, uh, let's see if any residential is gonna fit. No, it's not because now it's going past our site constraints, which are gonna be these dotted lines. So immediately, and this is the smaller residential block, immediately I know no residential on the ground floor. Okay, so now what do we have left? Um, the parking also isn't gonna fit here, so we're gonna put that over here. Um, we've got our residential lobby that could fit, and we also have utilities which could fit. So when determining which one we're gonna put there, let's scroll back up to this question. Utility service enters the site from Broadway. That gives us, that's very clear, that's easy. We want utilities to be on the Broadway side. I'm putting those underground for a few reasons. Number one, no one's hanging out in the utility room. That's not something that we need to have, you know, right on the street that everyone's looking into. Um, and we also don't wanna put it back near the alley because bringing in all those utility services is just gonna add time, money, and um, I was gonna say time, money, and cost. Money and cost are the same thing. That's gonna add uh, time, money, and potential scope to your uh, project. So we're gonna, again, put that right by Broadway. So let's look at these last two blocks that we have to put here. Look at that, parking fits perfectly next to utilities. Um, and if you've ever been in an underground parking garage, that lines up, that's a pretty typical layout, uh, especially for a residential tower. And now we've got our residential lobby right next to the retail. So right off the bat, four of these things we've already used. Now all we have to focus on is the residential. So going back to the question, this is where we're really gonna have to start looking at these setbacks. So the first floor is gonna be that 12 feet tall. Again, I would typically be highlighting some of this information in the question so that when I look up, I can just see it right off the bat. Highlight, use the whiteboard, do whatever you need to do. So 12 feet tall is our first floor and the first setback is gonna start affecting us at 15 feet above grade and that's gonna be the rear setback. Okay, so let's see what 
I can place on there. So let's just bring our residential blocks in here and see how those work. Okay, we can't have two of the small residential blocks next to each other. It goes past our uh, lot lines. So we're gonna put that back. So let's use our bigger residential block. And this is the rear setback of the 30 feet. So we're gonna just Tetris this down and fall straight down here. So that's our rear setback. So let's figure out how tall we can go before this 15 feet starts to affect us. So that's gonna be 65 feet above grade. Fortunately, because we're using 10 foot blocks and a 12 foot base, that math is pretty easy to do. So we're just gonna count it out as we go. So we've got 12 feet, the residential on top, that's gonna be 22 feet, 32 feet, 42, 52, and finally 62 feet. So 62 is the highest we can go before this 15 foot setback starts to affect us. So now what we wanna do, look at that, our small residential block fits right between those. So again, we'll put it in the middle and kind of Tetris that down. So we wanna stack this pretty much as high as we can go. So stack, stack, stack. Let's say we reach the top of this, great. Oh wait, that's right, there was another uh, requirement in our pro uh, problem. So we've got our max building height is 100 feet. Okay, it's very unlikely that you're gonna have to you know, build off the screen here. So naturally I'm stopping right at the top, but let's go ahead and count our floors now and see what height we're at. So we've got the 12 foot at the bottom. Um, again, we know this is 62 feet here. So let's just start from there, 62, 72, 82, 92. So what this means is I'm actually over our overall height that we can get to. So this is going to be how we solve that question. Um, all my blocks are in place. I've used everything I think I need to. What I'm gonna do before I just go ahead and click that next button is I like to go up and just make sure that I've met all the requirements. Very fortunately, all of our zoning requirements are laid out nice and neat in all of these bullet points. So let's just go ahead and make sure we met all those. Rear setbacks are required beginning 15 feet above grade. Okay, again, this is a 12 foot. This is our rear setback, check, we've got that. Front setbacks are required beginning at a height 65 feet above grade. Let's go ahead and double check, 12, 22, 32, 42, 52, 62, great. We've got that setback that's now applied. So check, we've satisfied that requirement. The max building height is 100 feet. Again, that was the last thing that I checked, so I feel pretty good about that. And there are no floor area ratio requirements. So that is how I would end this question. It looks like we've got everything um, as it should be. And before I hand this back over to Chris, there is one thing I wanna point out, and it's not used on this question, but just for those who don't know, on some drag and place questions, you may be asked to rotate details. Um, I don't know why we would do that here, but all you're gonna do is drag the block onto the question, right click on it, and a rotate box is gonna pop up. And you're gonna type in the angle of degree, boom, that's rotated. If for whatever reason we had a really, uh, a residential unit with the highest ceilings known to man, it could go right here. Um, the question should tell you if you are gonna need to rotate items, it, typically tells you up here, but that is something to be aware of on the exam itself.
Thanks, Kat. That was great. I, I, um, I was wondering how people would start when answering this question, and I think starting with the retail is a, a really good move, and, and then you could start sort of uh, start to build on the question after that in a methodical way. Um, so I think for PA in general, one of the one of the things you have to realize is um, there's obviously a lot of knowledge that you have to study for this question in particular. You need to know what all of these setbacks means, setbacks mean, and you need to know about floor area ratio. You need to know a little bit about utility service. Um, so you need to study those things and how they affect uh, laying out a building. But I think there's a lot of questions on the PA exam where you're going to need to practice doing something like this. Um, so taking practice exams and practice quizzes that have questions like this is is super helpful because um, that's what you're going to have to do on the exam. And no question is sort of like the next one. So um, the repetition is super important. You'll You'll also see that on the PA exam when it comes to questions that are going to ask you to arrange the elements of a program a certain way or create bubble diagrams and things like that. Like those are all things that you can study and read all you want about the idea behind how to do that, but without practicing it, it's um, it's hard to put into practice. So um, I would say of all the exams, practicing um, specifically by answering questions for the PA exam is, is super important. Um, we're gonna move on now to PPD. Um, and we're going to switch it up a little bit. Kat's been uh, taking a good amount of time explaining these questions as she goes through. And I think for this one, we're going to go through it a little bit more uh, game speed, if you will, kind of like quickly how she would do it on the exam, um, just to sort of give a, a, a sense of some time-saving tips you could use on a question like this. And to take a step back for this question, we're, we're in the PPD exam, which roughly corresponds to the design de development phase. So we're doing things like this question is asking, where we're, um, we're thinking about how thick our wall is going to be and the ratings of between spaces so that we can start to appropriately size things on our plans. So take it away. Great. Thanks, Chris. Okay, so let's just jump right into the question here. An architect is adding wall tax to a plan for a new construction project. A particular wall required a one hour rating. Again, something I would highlight. The architect wants to use the thinnest wall possible to achieve the required rating. Which wall type is appropriate for this condition? So let's just take a quick look at what we've got. So we've got 5 eighths type X chip on each side of this wall. We've got our fiber bat insulation and we have four inch wood studs. All right, our next option type, uh, one inch type X chip, two, half inch type x chip fiber bat and now we've got four inch metal studs so immediately my mind is saying okay hold on we've got wood studs versus metal studs kind of fortunately the question does not allude to whether we're using wood or metal studs in construction so that is kind of a red herring um, we don't have to say we can't just say um, you know we're definitely not using wood studs or we're definitely not using metal studs um, so while that is rare that you would see, you know, wood studs next to metal studs, um, I'm sure there are situations where that does happen. So unfortunately, we can't just use that to say one is correct and one is not. Um, moving on, we've got half inch jip on both sides, two and a half inch wood stud in the middle. Okay, so this is so far than a stud. Um, the next one, we've got a five eighths and three and five eighths inch metal stud, so thicker again this, um, the two and a half inch wood stud is still gonna be our thinnest. Um, we've got the fiber bat, jip, half inch jip on one side, three or five eighths inch jip on the other. And we have acoustical tape here, which we haven't seen anywhere else. 
Again, our question mentions nothing about acoustical properties, so that's not really important for our purposes right here. So that's just a little extra piece of information that we don't necessarily need. Um, so this one, I, I have to say guys, I had a hand in helping write this one and it is a little bit of a trick question because out of all the wall assemblies that we do have here, um, only one is actually a true one hour rated wall. So if there were multiple options for more than a one hour rated wall, what I would say is pull up your whiteboard and calculator and actually write out um, the math to see exactly how thick all of these wall assemblies are. So that'd be, you know, two times five eighths plus four inches. And that's going to give you um, a total thickness of, I believe, five and a quarter inches. And I would say do that for all of these. But again, because there actually is only one right answer, we're not going to do that. We're going to skip over that. So the right answer is going to be this top one here. And I will explain why. So five eighths inch type X gypsum board on either side of a wall assembly is a very classic one hour rated firewall assembly. Um, looking at number two, the one inch type X gypsum board, this is closer to a shaft liner that you that typically gives you a two hour rating. So this is actually too robust. And this is again where we want to be paying attention to the question wording. So it required a one hour rating. It does not say minimum one hour rating. If it said a minimum one hour rating, that could very easily change the answer of the question. But because we are looking specifically for one hour, the only correct answer is this top one, but I'll run through the others just to explain as well. So this guy, we've got two layers of the half inch type X gyp on either side. Half inch gyp um, roughly gives you 30 minutes of fireproofing, um, maybe a little bit more, but you can't just stack gyp on top of each other and say 30 minutes, one hour, one and a half, two hours. It doesn't work that way. There's a lot more that goes into installing um, multiple layers of drywall and gyp board, uh, including staggering, special kind of taping, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so this, if you actually added it up, this is going to be our thinnest wall assembly coming up at four and a half inches. And it will give us roughly 80 minutes worth of fire protection, according to Underwriters Laboratories, um, which is the UL rating system for fire rated assemblies, but it is overkill for what we need. It's a little too robust. It's also a very, very specialized type of wall. Um, so if you see something like this, that should be a little red flag saying, okay, there's a lot going on here. Installing that half inch type X and two layers is um, kind of a specialized treatment. That's not going to be what we want typically. And then our final option, we've got um, 5 8 inch gyp and half inch type X. If we had half inch type X on either side, this could be a contender. Unfortunately, we have only 5 8 inch gyp on one side. It is not the type X. Type X is really important because that is the fire and I believe moisture resistant board. It's created a little bit differently than the than the typical 5 8 inch gyp board, which has only about a 20 minute rating. So again, um, if the answers were different, I might actually take some time to do the math, but just looking at the pictures itself, there is only one right answer. Thanks, Kat. That was great. So this um, this question for PPD is just one example of a type of question that you could see on the exam. You're, you're going to see this question followed by a question about foundation detailing, followed by a question about roofing, and so on and so forth. I think that's the challenge with 
this particular exam and and PDD actually um, upcoming is and and also building code and, and egress and things like that. You're going to see questions like that. So there's just a ton of information um, that you have to study for these exams. So how do you do it? Um, I think you need to break it down into manageable chunks and study, for example, for this question, I would get familiar with a couple of common um, wall assemblies and common ratings and how to make a one-hour rated wall and the different ways you can make a two-hour rated wall. Um, so on and so forth. So I would kind of go assembly by assembly, material by material, and and study things um, one at a time. What I what I don't want anybody to do after watching this uh, podcast is saying that they need to sit with the underwriters' laboratory details uh, for a week and study all of the different types of wall assemblies because you you'll never finish studying for P PD if you if you go down that route. It's very easy to go down a rabbit hole. So. Um, I think my main point um, on this for this exam is that you've got to be familiar with a whole bunch of things, but for this exam in particular, you really want to make sure that you're not overdoing it and getting too into the details on any particular material or system and um, study those high yield topics that you know are definitely going to be on the exam. You're going to get questions about um, about the building code and egress, which we'll cover on our next Airy Live episode. You're going to get a question like this about fire-rated walls and how they're constructed and so on and so forth. But uh, just, just be careful about going down rabbit holes when studying for this particular exam. So moving on to the PDD division, we've got um, a question here about detailing an egress component. Um, pretty common during the CD phase of the exam that you'd be required to do this, so it makes sense that it's showing up on the PDD um, exam. So um, there's a good amount of numbers here, and one of the tricks, not tricks, but things that you have to do to answer this question is turn this sort of paragraph into a diagram of what we're trying to do and then solve for what's being asked for. So um, it takes a good amount of practice to be able to do that, and Kat's going to walk us through it. Right on. Um, so I am cognizant of the time and I know that I've been taking up a lot of time with explanations. So I am going to try and do this uh, real time speed. So I hope that everyone's able to follow along. Um, an architect is working on an addition to a four story museum. The existing museum has 15 foot floor to floor height at the first story and 11 foot at each story thereafter. The proposed addition will match the first story's floor to floor height, so 15 feet, and have nine foot nine floor to floor heights thereafter. The roof decks of each wing will be connected to create a rooftop restaurant with outdoor seating. The two roof levels will be connected with an accessible ramp and an outdoor staircase, which will have seven inch risers max and 11 inch treads. What is the minimum length of the staircase connecting the two roofs, excluding landings and ignoring stair nosings? All right, so immediately what I'm gonna do here is I'm gonna draw these out and we're gonna use the rectangle tool um, because hopefully that'll be a little nicer than my actual drawing. So we know that the first story, we've got two four story uh, buildings or one and then an addition. Um, so the first story is, let's see, it's that 15 feet at the base. And then for the original building, we've got 11 feet per floor. So let's add 11, 11, 11. Um, so let's see what's that total height gonna be. 11 times three is gonna be 33. Let's do 33 plus 15. That gives us a roof deck top height of 48 feet even. All right, so now the addition. So our 
floor to floor heights are going to be um, a little bit smaller so we've got 15 feet to begin with and then it's going to be nine foot nine going up from there so this gets a little bit trickier because um, you know dealing with inches is never fun working in base 12 isn't great uh, shout out to the metric system for having solved that um, but unfortunately <laughs> we're still based in imperial so we're going to be using feet and inches so let's go ahead and calculate what that's going to be just for speed of calculation i'm going to calculate this a little bit differently so i'm going to say nine feet times three is 27 so 27 plus 15 that's going to give me a height of 42 feet i'm going to just jot that down real quick 42 feet and then but we still have those inches nine times three again is 27 27 inches is actually going to equal get the text in here again uh, 27 inches is two feet three inches so that's the way that i'm going to avoid having to um, convert inches to decimal points etc so 42 plus two feet three inches our other rooftop is going to be 44 feet, three inches tall. Okay, so now that we have the, uh, the two rooftop heights, we need to figure out what the distance between the two is. So I'm gonna scroll down here, we're gonna lose this diagram, but we've got 48 feet, 44, three, and I'm gonna draw another diagram. So let's see. Um, we're gonna have you know stairs coming down here um, because I can't draw stairs very well I'm just gonna ramp the rest of this <laughs> even though it will be stairs so again let's figure out our top height we said is 48 feet and our bottom height is going to be the 44 foot 3 inches let me scroll up to make sure that that is correct for yep 44 foot 3 inches and 48 perfect so let's go ahead and subtract those from each other uh, 48 feet minus 44 feet three inches that's going to be a difference of three feet nine inches so we are solving this problem in inches so at this point i'm going to convert the three feet nine inches just to inches total so we've got 36 inches which is the three feet plus those nine inches so we know that the height of this stair needs to be 45 inches at minimum so now let's go ahead and divide that by the maximum height of the risers which is seven inches 45 divided by seven that's going to equal 6.4 a lot of decimals so what that means is we need a minimum of seven risers here um, because obviously if we have six it's not going to get us there so we're going to have to have seven risers um, so when I first looked at this question, I was really tempted to say seven risers, seven, uh, seven runs, seven treads, but that's actually not true. So if we go ahead and draw out, sorry, I'm trying to get my um, pen back. There we go. So if we actually draw out the risers, we've got riser one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So the question did say we are not including the landings. So the last tread is actually gonna be part of that top landing. So what we're gonna get, is, or what we're looking for, ah, another great example of the whiteboard being a little fussy. 
Um, what we're looking for here is going to be this distance. So again, not including those landings, which only consists of six treads. So our treads are 11 inches. So what we're looking for here is actually going to be 66 inches. Thanks. I kind of like going through these uh, quickly. It's it's uh, it's it's really good uh, for I think good for viewers to see how you answer these questions, sort of, um, if you were taking them on taking the real exam. Um, I think, you know, like I was saying earlier, one of the challenges with um, PPD is that there's a whole bunch of things that you're going to be tested on, and the same is true for PDD. Um, one of the reasons to take PDD afterwards is you can just sort of build on your study foundation that you built for PPD, uh, study each system and the building code and things like that in more detail um, when you get ready to take the PDD exam. And it really does make sense to me in, in that you're, when you're taking PA through PDD, you're, you're kind of going through the course of a project, they're chronological, and I think it makes sense to take those exams in that order. Um, this last question here for the CE division, um, one of the reasons, well, first of all, this question is not necessarily a typical question you're going to see on CE. Um, you're gonna see a lot of questions about pay apps and contracts and what should the architect do if this, that, and the other thing happen on site. Um, those are your, you know, 80% of the CE exam. But a question like this, um, which might make up, you know, 20% of the exam, is common, and it's it's common enough that we um, make a point to cover it in our in our content. Um, if you think about it, when you're doing construction administration, you're walking around a site and you're you're evaluating the construction. So it makes sense that you need to be familiar with what this construction should look like in the field, and you should be able be able to identify what's wrong with a picture, um, just like you would be able to do that if you were in the field evaluating the project. So um, it makes sense, I think, to take this exam last after you've studied all of those construction details and construction systems so that you have that knowledge to be able to answer a question like this. Um, I'll say also that parapets, um, masonry walls, and foundation details are common to be included as uh, a question like this on the CE exam. So I'd make it uh, a point of emphasis to study those particular details. So Kat, take it away. Awesome, so this is gonna be our last question um, that I'm gonna walk through with you guys. So an architect is performing a site visit during the installation of a roof parapet assembly of a mid-rise commercial building. Which area in the photo is incorrectly installed? So I'm gonna scroll down just so we can get a better look at it. Okay, so let's see what we're looking at. We've got our parapet here. We've got what looks like a parapet cap. Uh, this is probably a portion of the wall assembly, which looks like it's wrapped with something. It looks almost like bubble wrap. Uh, we've got the wall kind of continuing in the background and our roof over here. So what I'm really focused on here is I want to look and see how this is all coming together. So again, we've got our wall assembly, we've got the cap, We've got what looks like um, a portion of the wall here. It steps up a little bit over here. Um, so what I am looking at when I look at a roof parapet is number one, you know, is the wall standing correctly? And number two, what are we gonna do about moisture? Because this is part of the building that's exposed to the elements, uh, particularly on the roof, we wanna be really aware of how water travels through this building, um, or rather hopefully not through, but around this building. So as water comes down, um, obviously this portion is going to be uh, covered by the parapet cap. Uh, so that that's not the incorrect answer. This is supposed to be mid-construction. 
the correct answer is not that the parapet cap is missing. Um, so if the rain comes down, it's gonna hit the parapet cap and either slide this way and go onto the roof where there should be some roof drains, or it's gonna slide off the building into a gutter system, or um, there might be another lower roof on the other side. There should be something there to catch the water so it doesn't just waterfall onto patrons walking by. Um, so I'm really looking at the construction of this parapet right here. Um, I Typically, I would like to see a little bit of flashing over here on this edge, just in case water does get in, but we do see the parapet cap lapse pretty darn lowly over this wall. So if it stopped a little shy, I might be concerned that water might sneak up into there, but I'm not necessarily concerned about that. So I'm going to say that without the flashing is okay. We do have the wall assembly wrapped in what looks like um, some kind of weatherproofing, which is good. So that kind of leaves us with the parapet cap. One thing that I do see that I like, we've got the parapet cap screwed in from the sides and not the top. Any top penetration is gonna be somewhere where water can potentially find its way into the wall cavity and cause destruction. Um, so that you know leaves us with the answer, what's left? So this is kind of a tricky one, but I think we've all seen metal um, you know, in an outdoor area before airports typically use it. A lot of buildings use it as part of their facade. And one thing to know about working with metal is it does this thing called oil canning, um, where that means that as temperatures flex, the metal is going to either uh, get a little bit bigger or a little bit smaller. Um, this also looks like fairly thin sheet metal. So what that means to me is if there's anyone, if a maintenance person accidentally steps on the top of this and flattens this metal, um, or if the temperature rises or falls, this is going to create a very flat plane where water is going to sit. We do not want water sitting on top of a wall because eventually it will find a place inside. So what I'm gonna say is missing here is actually some blocking. So I'm gonna click here because I think that there should be a small ridge that's involved um, underneath the parapet cap between the cap and the actual wall itself. If this was, you know, if this had a very particular curve to it, um, I might not be as concerned about that, but because it is such a low profile, I really don't want that water coming down and just sitting there. And that's it. That's how you detail a parapet wall. Um, for for the C, like I said, um, for the CE exam in general, this isn't a major part of it. I would even go so far as to say I wouldn't Restudy all of the details that I've uh, studied already for the CE exam. I think that's one reason to take this exam last. But if it's possible, I would um, try at my office to, if you're not already doing it, to be involved on site visits and uh, get some real practice at doing this. Um, and I, then I think the other side of the coin is taking practice exams and, and seeing questions like this and understanding what you're going to be looking for on the actual exam. So um, don't, you know, don't devote a week or two of your study schedule towards studying construction details again for the CE exam. You should be studying uh, the contracts again and, and pay apps and um, procedures that are done during the, the construction administration phase. You should focus your efforts there, but um, we just don't want you to be shocked when you show up to the real exam that, and you see questions like this because they, they definitely do occur. Um, with that, we are going to move to our Q&A session, and we've got a couple of questions in here. Um, first one, Kat, is somebody's asking, do you think it's best to start with the case studies first or go in order starting from the first question and just sort of working uh, your way through the exam in the order that it's presented? 
Sure, that is a great question. Um, and I definitely do have a lot of thoughts on that. So long story short, I would say that that depends on you. Um, there were, I, I did both on my exams. Um, I think on practice and project management, I started from question one and I went through on PPD and PDD. Um, my first couple questions were really math heavy and that kind of spooked me. So I jumped straight to the case studies because it helped my brain wake up a little bit. And I knew all of the answers were going to be given to me. I just had to find them. Um, that said, I find, I hear a lot of people say, you know, I'm going to leave half my time on the exam for case studies. And I really wouldn't recommend that. The reason being every question on these exams is worth the same amount of points. We do not get bonus points for that really hard calculation or the case study where we had to look through 10 reference materials. Um, every question is worth one point and we do not need to get a minimum number of a particular question correct. For example, you don't have to get at least 50% in the case studies to pass. Um, it is a cumulative score, so if the cut rate is 70% for your particular exam, as long as you get 70% of the questions correct overall, you will still pass. So that being said, do whatever works best for you. I would encourage you, you know, on some of the practice exams, try different strategies. Start with question one on one exam, start with the case studies on the other, and see how they fit for you. And it's okay to switch up your strategy from test to test. I certainly did. Yeah, that's a great one. We've got a good amount of questions here about uh, just test taking strategy in general. So I'm going to focus on those questions. And we we did have some specific questions come in about specific um, answers and, and um, the questions that we went over here. I'm going to answer those later in the community and we'll focus on testing strategy here. Um, we've got a question about this question, the CE question, about how close does the location identifier need to be to the actual location of the problem with the parapet? And, and again, this is about this particular question, but it's right. good to talk about in general. So take it away. Definitely. I remember when I was testing, I, boy, was I nervous that, you know, if I clicked, let's say here, instead of right here, that, oh my gosh, that would be wrong. Um, the answer is we are not positive exactly how big that area is that we have to click on, but NCARP is fairly generous with their correct area. They will not give you like a one pixel by 10 pixel um, area to click on. I would say if you're clicking anywhere kind of in the area that I'm circling, you would probably get this question right. Um, and even so, if this was a question on the actual exam, they might even have kind of a cropped, more zoomed in view so that the correct answer would be easy, even easier to click on. Um, in general, I would say they are more gracious, NCARB is more gracious with the area you, you can click on than, um, than not. So I know it's really tempting to say like, oh no, should I move this, you know, half, half a pixel that way or the other way? that's probably, if you're in the general correct area, you're probably okay. Yeah, I agree with that. I, um, in writing these questions, I, I know that, you know, you know, we err on the side of caution and, and make the area, you know, we, we try to include every area that somebody might plausibly click that's correct um, in the correct answer area and, and CARB does the same thing. Um, with that said, I would click right where Kat clicked in, which is for this question in the center of the problem area, just to be totally sure. And then I would forget about it and move on to the next question. Don't sit there and, and move this thing around 10 times um, because you've got other questions to answer. So um, wherever the problem area is, click right in the center and move on. 
we've got a similar question about Dragon Place questions. And the question is, um, how worried do we have to be about aligning these things perfectly? I think it makes a lot of sense to ask that question mm -hmm. for the particular question we wrote for this one. Um, Definitely. But yeah, how, how, um, how cautious do we have to be about lining this up perfectly like we would for a presentation drawing, I guess? Yeah, that's a that's a really good question. So I've pulled up our drag and place. Um, I would say it's very similar to the hotspot question where there is some leeway here. So the way that NCARP determines what a correct answer is, is they are going to have on their answer sheet kind of a colored area. And I would say as long as you're 85% of the way in that, you're probably okay. Um, they just want to make sure that you roughly know where you're going. Obviously on this one, these lines don't come all the way down. So if I'm over here, I don't think that that's going to break the bank, right? I, there is going to be that little bit of leeway. If mine aren't totally aligned, you know, if they're off just a little bit, that's going to be okay. Little things like that, NCARB really isn't looking to make sure that you are really good at using a computer <laughs> or really good at eyeballing lines. They're really just looking to make sure that we generally know what we're talking about. Um, and again, I know that's easier said than done because when you're on the exam, it, does, it can feel very different. Um, so an example for one of these bottom residential units, this placement is good, this placement is probably okay. If it's overlapping a little, that might be fine. If it's you know right on the line, that's probably okay. This is where it would not be okay. That's very clearly past our property line. Something like this, that's very clearly right in the middle. We wanna be trying to get as close to that line as we can, but again, we don't wanna, uh, spend time fussing about is that should I move it one pixel should I move it two pixels as long as you're 80% in the right location you you should be okay yeah that's great just like with the hotspot questions don't fuss around with it too much and um, just what Kat has here uh, on the screen is is perfect and um, you could like she was saying you could even be a little messier than that and you'd still be marked correct um, let's see should okay should you answer every question, even if you don't have time to finish for the test by guessing for the questions you don't get to? Yeah, that's that's a really common question that I hear. Um, so I would say on multiple choice and check all that apply, absolutely. It's a little harder when it's fill in the blank um, because you don't know if that's gonna be a decimal or um, you know, a large number or a small number. But in general, we do want to be answering every question on the exam. There are no penalties for wrong answers. So absolutely input a wrong answer or input an answer even if you think it might be wrong. Better to try and fail than not try at all. Um, that said, I will let you guys in on some information that is NCARB wants us to be spending roughly two minutes a question on these exams. So like I said before, each question is worth the same amount of points. So if you do spend roughly two minutes per question, you should be able to get through the exam with enough time even to go back and check any flagged questions. Um, there is no point in spending 20 minutes on one question when you could be spending 20 minutes answering another 10 questions. 
The goal here, unfortunately, is not to get 100% A plus on these exams. The goal is to pass. I personally believe there will always be one or two questions that feel like they came directly out of left field. Um, and don't, try not to let those trip you up. You don't have to get a minimum number of questions correct per content area either. Again, it is cumulative. So if it's 70%, try and get at least 70% of the questions correct. That's great, and that's a good leeway into another question that we have. You mentioned uh, two minutes a question, and somebody asked, how are we supposed to answer these questions in two minutes? Um, I'll just start by saying that when, when we prepare questions for ARE Live, they are on the lengthier side for the purpose of demonstration. I, I think it would be kind of boring if we went through a whole bunch of uh, kind of you either know it or you don't questions. There, there'd be a little bit less for us to talk about, um, so it'd be less interesting. But um, don't um, watch these podcasts and think that every question on the exam is like this. It's really not the case. Um, with that said, Kat, maybe we could just open it up to just general um, test-taking strategies related to timing. Like, how are you? Yeah. Um, how, are you, how are you dealing with the timing of the exam? Absolutely. And whoever wrote that question, I fully agree with you. And that's a good point. These questions might not be two minute questions. I think out of the ones that we looked at, the only true one that would be under two minutes is going to be the hotspot. For me, this question might take 45 seconds to a minute. There's not a whole lot to look at. I might be processing a little bit, but again, at the end of the day, I'm gonna click and move on and I'm gonna forget about this because there are other questions to get to. If I look at this and I truly have no idea, I'm just gonna click in a random spot and say, you know what, maybe I don't get this question right and move on. Um, so when I said that two minutes, that's an approximation. There are gonna be questions that could basically be a flashcard. Um, and then there are gonna be questions like um, the staircase one that requires some math and some drawing, and that is gonna take a little bit longer. I would say no question should take you more than about four minutes. And if it does, a little red flag should be popping up that says, you know what, I might be on the wrong path here. And at that point, it's best to flag it and move on. Input an answer um, if you're close. But again, we don't wanna be spending you know, 20 minutes on one individual question because we do wanna answer as many questions as possible. Totally agree, and I think one of the benefits of um, using practice exams is really um, figuring out what um, strategy you want to use when it comes to taking the exam and practicing doing that exact strategy while you're uh, looking at the clock. So um, what I like to do is um, when I when I was taking the exam, I knew after 20 questions about how much time I should have left on the clock, and I would kind of look at it that way. I wouldn't um, I wouldn't sit there and think, am I am I taking two and a half minutes on this question? I wouldn't do that for every question, but after you get you know a quarter of the way through the test and then 50%, just do a little time check and see if you have to speed up or or slow down uh, or if you can slow down um, to to get through the rest of the exam. Uh, sort of related question, let's see, are we allowed to see the part one questions when we start part two if we took no break? I think this person's referring to um, the discrete versus case study questions. Yes, so yes, that is true. As long as you don't take a break, you can still see all of the questions on the exams. Um, I know that there is a thing that pops up typically on the exam that says, you know, you're going to the case studies, are you sure? This is just a reminder for candidates that if they do want to take a break, 
Um, uh, I think a common break placement is between the discrete items and the case studies. So that's just a reminder because we do get locked out if we do see a question, then take a break. That says, you know, don't jump in quite yet. If you want to take your break, now might be a good time. But yes, you will be able to go back between the discrete items and the case studies. And that's even true if you start with the case studies and let's say you get through two thirds of them and you decide you want to take your break then or you need a bio break, something like that. If you come back in, you will still have access to the case study questions you have not answered, and you will still have access to the rest of the exam itself. So this is another good strategy if you wanna use the case study references throughout the entire exam as well. I always recommend leave one case study question unread until after your break. That way, when you come back in, you'll still have access to that last question and all the references that come with it. That's a great answer. We've got a ton of questions flying in. I hope we can get to them all. I know we're a little bit over time, but let's do a few more. Um, let's see, what is the approach in retaking the test and not passing sections in which you've already passed in the previous test? Do you have any experience with that, Kat? I do, <laughs> I do, and it hurts. Um, so at that point, what I typically say is, that is more of a testing strategy issue than a general knowledge issue. So there are, I think it's 20 or 21 forms of each exam. I always thought there were three or four, but no, there are for you know, practice management, there are 21 different exams that you could be given. And each of those exams have you know, a range of percentage that it makes up the exam for each content area. So let's say one content area makes up between 20 to 25% of your exam. If it was a 100 question exam, you might get 20 questions on the first one and those might be easier. You might get 25 questions that are on the harder side for the second exam. So I wouldn't expect you necessarily to do as well in that same section on that second exam. That said, um, that is a good place where you can say, okay, clearly there is a gap in knowledge here. So there's something that I might be missing that I could study more. So instead of, you know, just going straight back to the drawing board and saying, I got to read you everything, I would pull up the ARE guidelines that NCAR publishes. And I would take a look at, you know, under this content area in this exam, what are all the objectives? And, you know, look at the practice questions that uh, NCARB gives you for that specific exam and say, okay, you know, I know I struggle with this one, or that's interesting. This objective, maybe I'm not hitting as much as I did. Yeah, that's great advice. And I would say, you know, these are long exams, but it's, it's not a ton of questions on each exam. So, um, you know, for example, you might've um, passed section one the first time by getting 10 questions right and then the the next time you failed it because you got nine questions right like the difference is really only one question uh, just because it's a relatively small sample size so um, it could again just be that you you got a harder form that time or, or something like that um, but I, I appreciate uh, Kat's advice there let's see um, I took and failed PPD and PDD I took them about two weeks apart on both exams. I lacked a bit in the integration of disciplines. What's the best way to study this? That is a great question. And those were actually the first two exams I took and I took them about a month apart and I failed each one. And let me tell you, I learned how to drive my car while crying. Um, that hurts. So <laughs> my heart does go out to you, but the good news is, you know, it sounds like you're still studying, which is good. Um, failing 
failing an exam happens. It happened to me three separate times. Um, so, you know, that's just putting that out there for everyone to know. But as far as studying for specific topics, what I would point you to is in the back of the ARE guidelines, there's a whole matrix of resources. There's um, 60 books, 90 books. I don't know how many exactly, but they do break it down per exam. I am not by any means saying, you know, go read all those books cover to cover per exam. But what I might do is I might say, okay, you know, here's a few books for this exam. I'm going to check out the table of contents for some of these books. You can usually find a free preview online and see if there are chapters within that specific book that are going to be relevant. Um, at the end of the day, every single question that NCARB writes come from those reference books. So those are technically our answer key and what we do at Black Spectacles is we try and take all that information and make it more palatable and easier to digest because I don't think anyone wants to sit down and read 60 books you know cover to cover um, but again at the end of the day that is where all the questions come from so I would try and hone in on a specific book maybe a couple chapters and really see if you can dive into the resource there to fill in any gaps in information you might be missing. Yeah, I agree. Integration of building systems is a tough one. It's uh, it's definitely relies on experience. Um, I I'm not sure if that particular topic is covered uh, too well in the in the NCARB resources, but I I think a lot of it is um, practical knowledge of you know how am I going to integrate this mechanical system into this project when I've got these these uh, these beams in the way. Like how can I run the ductwork? Questions like that. Where um, maybe again practice is is kind of key. Taking practice exams and um, getting comfortable with the type of question you'll get on that topic. Um, all right, well, I bet that Kat has to get back to designing buildings, but we do have some outstanding <laughs> questions here that I will be sure to respond to in the community after this. So we really appreciate everybody for writing in today and you will all get some answers today. Um, but we are gonna wrap up the episode. So that is it for today and just a reminder that our next airy live will be on february 16th and we'll be talking all about egress systems you can go to go.blackspectacles.com forward slash podcast to sign up or check out the community page for this episode the lucky winner of the black spectacles t-shirt is k Cleetherms. i hope i pronounced that right uh congrats to you and we'll be reaching out via email shortly with more information Finally, please stick around for a few minutes after the broadcast to take our survey and share any suggestions you have for future episodes of ARI Live. I promise we read every word and we use your feedback to make this podcast as helpful as it can be. Thanks for watching.